I have got some jet lag, so I'm just going to warn you as I try to make this a message right now. It's going to be a little weird, and I'm going to do it quickly, hopefully, because I want to tie this up and, and land somewhere with, with um, something of the heart of what we gleaned in France. But what I was most surprised with in, in the France trip was I wasn't expecting to, to, to feel like the Lord was re-teaching me things that I had already been taught in a way that I felt is giving us a language and a template for us as a community to go after. They, uh, Gerard gave the seven stories of Scripture. And the seven stories of Scripture, um, which is part of their school, essentially look like this. There's, the first story is creation, then vocation, liberation, formation, limitation, incarnation, and restoration. And he worked that out, but here's the thing that I feel like our responsibility is. Um, those are big kind of theological words. And, and I feel like um, the Lord actually gave me kind of words to describe those words. That they kind of bring it down to kind of a focus point personally to each of us. Uh, and, and those seven things would be this. Uh, scripture tells one story, but Scripture is a story. And I feel like there's something of the story of Scripture that has been pulled out of the teaching of the church that has caused people to see the Bible separated from a story. Part of that is because we have looked at story as fiction, and Scripture has to be fact, right? So we can't tell it like a story because stories are are fiction, and science is fact, or we have that kind of internal thing that I think has affected our culture. But the reality is, is stories are the truest form of almost anything when you get at the heart of humanity. When you get moved, when you watch a film or a movie or whatever by the story, it's always a story where you are entering into concepts that you're well familiar with. If you see a love story that makes you cry, is it because you've never heard of the concept of love before and someone loving another person? Like when you cry when, like, when two people find their soulmate, or that a father picks up a child and looks in their eye and they have a moment and you're, you know, you're like weeping. Is it because it's the first time you've ever seen two people display love? No. It's because you've entered into their story and you've entered into an emotional state where that concept in the story is ministering to you. You're connecting with it. There's something of the intimacy of your humanity that is connecting with that. And if you do not see Scripture as story... You are unable to connect with the Father who wrote the story in a way that you were always meant to. You can't emotionally connect with it, and you don't have a story to tell anyone else. And so that was the first thing, is that that was what we started with, was the story of Scripture. And then these seven stories, I feel like creation is all about finding your why. Vocation is about finding your calling. Liberation is about your freedom. Formation is about your worship. Limitation is about your trials. Incarnation is about reuniting with God. And then finally, restoration is about your giftedness. And so we're going to, I think at some point, maybe this fall, go through this, but I want to just do the first one and kind of restate what I received in kind of quoting some of the stuff that Gerard used, but really kind of honing us in where, we, where I feel like this really speaks to us as a people. And we've been asking this, this question um, over the last couple years, what kind of people are we becoming here at Frontier? Uh, what are we about? Who are we? And, and what, is the, 
what is the, the, the sense of the family you get when you come and be a part of it? And I felt like there was something of the, how these, these stories, uh, and, and it's called the seven stories that shape your life. I felt like it, it really hit me that it gives us language in a fresh way. So what I'd invite you into is just kind of re-exploring some of these things that you probably are well familiar with um, to connect something of the Ephesians series we just did. Um, we just did a series through Ephesians. It ended a couple weeks ago. Uh, one of, I think, maybe the, the highlights of that book is when Paul says this in Ephesians 3, verse 10. I'm going to read a couple extra verses, starting in verse 7. Of, of this gospel... I was made a minister, Paul says, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am a very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. And here's verse 10, the highlight. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I'll go back to verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the ruler's authorities in the heavenly places, essentially the spirit realm. God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, the angels, the spiritual realms, which is real and which is in many ways, superior to the physical realm. You have a spirit. When you die, you will still have a spirit. So what's superior, the physical or the spiritual? Spiritual. We don't feel that, but we kind of know that. My Uber driver last night called himself an agnostic, but he was really eager to talk about faith and spirituality, and he, he kept talking about energy, and I'm like, so L.A. <laughs> But what was so fascinating is that he, he calls himself an agnostic, almost like he wanted to believe in something. He just hasn't really, he knows he can't prove it, and he understands that there's energy. And I'm like, well, that's an amazing start. You should come to Alpha. <laughs> and, but it, it reminded me that the human spirit is wired to recognize that the spirit realm, the realm of spiritual energy, is absolutely real. And there's an eternal nature to it. And this first dynamic of talking about, um, well, I want, I want to do several things in this, in this uh, first one, talking about creation. And uh, what did I title this message? I can't remember. There we go. Finding your why in the story. That's number one. That's the creation. Um, so there's seven stories. One is creation. I would say with creation, you want to realize, you want to focus in on why are you alive, and what is it that we're here for? I, I, I quote Simon Sinek, who, who is uh, not a believer, but is a, a really well-honored um, voice in the, the realm of marketing, and he talks on, on finding your why, and he says this, few know why they do what they do. If you don't know why you do what you do, how can you expect anyone to be loyal to you and be part of what you are doing? I think that was the number one, that message was the number one TED Talk for many, many years uh, online. That, that was a revolutionary statement. Just let that sink in for a moment. The simple act of knowing why you do what you do. People don't know why they do what they do. 
I don't think Christians fully understand why they do what they do oftentimes. I think we're going to rediscover that together. Does that sound okay to everyone? So I'm going to go faster now. I have three points, then I have a couple questions. The first point would be, A, the gift of being human. Then I want to talk about reading the Bible as story. Then what is it that God actually wants? So those are the first three things I want to go after. The first thing being the gift of being human. And Gerard started with this concept that, you know, unlike a donkey, which we were, or cows or whatever we were surrounded with, he was using the landscape, uh, it doesn't matter how smart they are, what they can do, what tricks you can have them perform, whether that's your cat, your dog, or whatever, there's something amazing that you can't be replaced. The human spirit, the human being is incredible. No other animal can use a calculator. We, we, can't, we can't teach a rat to cook food. And scripture ultimately says, what is that? We are the most sophisticated being on the planet. And even the angels pause, give notice, and are in awe of the human spirit and a human being. We are gifted, but because we're gifted, it begs the question that isn't there something required of us? And those questions, why am I here? What is my purpose? Those are really rational, legitimate questions to be asking. So God has gifted humanity and we're to do something with it. Can we all agree with that? Say, I am gifted. I am gifted. You're uniquely and wonderfully made. We know that. You are unlike anything else that's ever been created or ever will be created. The human being uh, is gifted and there is something required of us. So what are we doing with what we've been given? And at the heart of the creation story then is the, que- is the question of what God has given to humanity exactly. And then what are we going to do with it? Now, that's the question. Reading that story of scripture, here's why this is important. We need to see scripture as story. And like I just mentioned, some don't like using the term story. I think it's important that we do that. And we'll, we'll hopefully emphasize that by, by talking about this concept of story. Our lives are shaped by story. We discover often who we are by story. Scripture is full of story to help us work out who we actually are. We discover the truth about ourselves through story all the time. Many of us, if you share, like, when did you realize you were good at this and you have a story to tell them why? Why are you so paranoid about this? We have a story to tell you why. When did your family get dysfunctional? We have a story to tell you why. When did you develop that fear of heights? We have a story to tell you why. From the positive to the negative, story shapes us and it forms us. And John Steinbeck says this, a great and interesting story is about everyone or it will not last. So here's the thing. The story of scripture has to be about everyone, has to be for everyone, or it really isn't valuable to everyone. So do we, do we realize that, that the story of scripture is for everyone? Can we just make sure that your heart knows that as we start? It's for everyone. The story of scripture is something where when people hear the true story of what's being said, it does resonate with their heart. The reason why it doesn't resonate with their heart is because they're being told a story about scripture that isn't the right story. So I want that to get us excited. Uh, because if we realize that, then those of you in your life, in your places of influence, that are not receiving the story, I really want to encourage you with the reality. It's because they're being told the wrong story. Let's tell them a new one. Let's tell them the right one. Your life story prophesies to the story. We are meant to be people that are living out stories that continually tie back into the story God has been telling from the beginning of time. So, what God wants. What does God actually want? That's the third thing. 
There's this concept of original sin. How many of you have been hammered with that teaching of original sin at some point in your life? Amen. I see some hands. I see some hands. Ah, original sin. Good seminary word. For those of you that don't know what original sin is, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the concept of original sin. It kind of talks about this. It's a theological topic that says, you know, Adam sinned, therefore you're born sinful. And the underlying connotation then becomes that we start with a problem. Can anyone guess what that problem is? Sin! And then the message is sin, 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 sinny, sin, sin, sin. Church talks about sin, and we've got the problem solved for your sin. Jesus. And I love Jesus, and I do think he has no issue dealing with the problem of sin. But what I just did kind of in a, in a mocking way is I retold the story of Scripture starting with sin, and I started with a problem. And the church has told the story of sin by starting with the problem of sin. But that's not how the story goes, is it? When did sin enter? Genesis 3. Well, what happened in Genesis 1, 2, in the first part of 3? Well, there was no sin yet. So the story is not about the sin. You can't start a story with sin if it didn't enter at the beginning of the story. This is going to be, hopefully, really good news to someone in a second. So there's this thing called original intention. So think of this. I'm going to learn about original sin today. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to replace this thought of original sin that might have been harmful to me or someone else in the room. And I am going to replace this with a revelation of original intention or original intent. Amen. Okay. Original intention versus original sin. Original intention says this. If God has told us how the story begins, then everything about our story begins with God's intention. So let's start the story over. The story of Scripture is about God, and he's telling the story because he wrote the story. So he intended there to be something. He has intention with telling the story. And at the beginning of the story, there was no sin. Okay. Then we have original sin, but original was only actually a term. Original sin came later. It meant intrinsic to your being. But all those theologians that started talking about original sin, what they were trying to say was that that we're broken and that that brokenness was kind of wired into us. That's all they were really trying to say. And then we've gotten really big on harping on starting with this original sin notion. And we need to harp on the original intention notion. And the original intention notion um, does a couple of things. It starts God's story with this place of him saying, you're beautiful and everything I've created is good. Everything God created, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. If we start the story not with the problem, but with God's intention, then the story to people starts the same way. If we started that story, you're beautiful. It changes the entire plot, if you will, that the world hears from the church. And I think the problem is is that the church is telling the wrong story to itself. So there's two issues with starting with, the, with that problem of sin. Um, one, it's not what the Bible says, and two, it's super unhelpful. So God's story and your story. Do not start with the problem. That's the first thing I want. If you're going to take a note, do this. Let's not start the story with the problem. Let's start with intention and what the main character 
actually wants. And who's the main character? God. It's really simple. So let's start with what God actually wants. Um, what page am I on? I think I'm going a little bit quicker now. Okay. So, if you're going to walk up to someone and say, sin is what you are, their response is going to be, great, that's fantastic, thank you very much for that information. And the church has done that to a certain degree. Uh, I mean, we, we've gotten past the place, I mean, I grew up from childhood never saying that to people and laughing at, so quote-unquote, Christians that did that. But the reality is, is, is we would laugh at the people that held up signs and just yell at people that they're going to hell. And at the same time, then we'd sit in church and basically start with, you know, God loves you, but you've got this sin problem. And we start the story again with sin. Now, is sin real? 100%. But the story you tell about yourself and that you keep telling is going to determine the story that the world hears. And the reality is, is that here's what happened. Adam and Eve said, we are naked, and we are ashamed of our nakedness. God didn't tell them that. So it starts with brokenness and shame. That's how the story of sin enters. It starts with, you're beautiful, but then, uh uh-oh, shame enters. And God says, who told you that? Now, I've always received that as God's kind of grilling them, like, ooh, you weren't in the garden at the cool of the day when we were supposed to meet. It's because you're naked. We have this underlying thing of, like, there is this, like, God's, he's kind, but he's kind of, like, calling them out. What if, the, what if the posture of God's heart was, who told you you were naked? You didn't hear that dialogue from me. They received They received shame, and they decided that shame was going to be the place that they lived in. You cannot look at me. They would not let God look at them. What if our story became, God says you're beautiful, but we have said, don't look at me, and God wants to look at you. That's the, that's the story of Scripture. His intention does not start with a problem. Uh, Aaron Sorkin is a writer of A Few Good Men, The West Wing, among other things. And he talks about this concept of intention and obstacle that Gerard talked about that was really powerful. And he said essentially this, rather than tell the audience who the character is, I like to show the audience what the character wants. It all boils down to intention and obstacle. Somebody wants something. Something is standing in the way of getting it. They want the girl. They want the money. They want to go to Philadelphia, whatever. It doesn't matter, but they have to want it bad. If they can need it, that's even better. Something formidable is standing in their way, and the tactics the character uses to overcome the obstacle is going to define who the character is. This is a professional saying how every good story goes, and it starts with a character that has a want. So let's look at Scripture now with the main character being God, and he has a want. And it's different than what we thought. He wants something. He wants you. He wants intimacy with you. The obstacle is that we won't let him look at us. 
Does that not reframe the entire story? It's a really good story. I would want to see that movie. So what if the Bible is the story of what God wants? What if the story of Scripture is us finding out who God is by finding out what He wants and what He's prepared to do to get it? (laughs) That's what the person of Jesus emphasizes. What is God prepared to do so that you'll let Him look at you? That He can cover your shame, cover your brokenness, cover your sin. That's what Genesis is all about. It tells us what God wants and how far he's prepared to to do to get it. So what does he want? He wants to know us in the place that he made for us. That's it. He wants to know you in the place that he made for you. He made this creation for us, but he doesn't want to experience it without us being intimately connected, enjoying it together. He's looking for them in the garden in the cool of the day, but he wants to be with them. He wants to share the place with them. God's intention is always intimacy, always. Always, always. So what goes wrong in the story? So now that we have the storyline, the plot line, what goes wrong? What goes wrong when, they, when the, the shame enters? It's trust. Trust is what goes wrong. Doesn't that change? I mean, I can't say this enough. The story, I, I have never told that story to myself over and over again. I have never said, what's the story of humanity's issue? Shame and trust. And why are those topics so prevalently valuable and people are sucking them in right now? Everything I go in, in, in secular society that's training in the workplace or in, in how to lead teams it, or, or just making yourself whole, it's, it's attacking things like, why can't you trust and what are you doing with your shame? It's everywhere. If we would tell this story, we wouldn't have to convince people to come to church. They'd be finding themselves in the story. This is amazingly good news. So nowhere does it say that God thinks you're disgusting and I can't look at you, Adam. Nowhere. Nowhere. What does God ask? Why are you hiding? And who told you you were naked? Meaning, again, what? That God did not. God did not shame them. And we've turned that whole encounter between God and them and their clothes into a shame act of God kind of covering them for their shame instead of them not letting God look at them. This is a huge deal because God did not break the relationship. We did. And what the culminating takeaway is that we are more comfortable in fear and shame than we are in the exposure to God's love. That is the story. So that's the real problem that Scripture actually sets up, that God actually wants to be intimate with these people, and in fact, the blessing of the earth is dependent on it because without intimacy with God, we get it all wrong. So the story then becomes, how is God going to get people to trust again and to restore intimacy so that transformation of the earth can happen? And we have this obstacle. We won't let God look at us. And so we have fundamentally have got a good God in union with the Son, and we have the problem because we will not let him see us. And then God says, ultimately, I never said that. What if the one thing today is that you just realize that God never said that to you? He's not speaking that over you. 
I really think that the core place that many people live with each day is, is an area of life that they can't possibly let other people see. And the message that we have is that God wants to see you. Maybe it starts with us seeing people when they don't believe he exists or that he could possibly see anything good in them. The point is that God seeing us in our nakedness and shame is not the problem. He's a father, and we do everything to keep him from seeing us. Addiction, numbing, whatever, because we don't want to be exposed to someone who loves us so perfectly, so completely, and so unconditionally. And so then this is the story that we get to in Ephesians, in the New Testament. And God, since he can't get the entire planet to automatically trust him, he starts with one guy, Abraham, and one family of Israel. They also fail to be the salt and light of the world. And of course, through Jesus, Jesus comes, he puts things right in this climactic fashion, and then we see Paul in Ephesians saying that now, through the church, God is doing what he always intended to do. You are a part of completing this story. So we come with this attitude that we want uh, our place in the story to be absolutely rooted in what? God? What do you want? What is your intention? What's your desire? What can we unlock in our spouse, in our coworker, in our Uber driver, in our families, in our own self? So God's original intention then in Genesis gets worked out then by faithfulness and fruitfulness of his people. And this is kind of how we, we land on this concept. So to be faithful to me is what he's asking. So trust me in order that you might be fruitful. Because he gives them this decree. Be fruitful. That's the Genesis commissioning. Fruitfulness. You cannot be fruitful apart from dealing with your shame. That's what got compromised. And so now that we're having that dealt with, we can be fruitful again. And there's this lie that the point of the church is to recruit people. That's a horrible task. That's like slavery almost again. If, if our goal is to recruit, I mean, who really wants to be a recruiter except for recruiters? Right? <laughs> Has anyone had to be a recruiter when they didn't want to be? Isn't that the most horrific job on earth? Now, I love recruiters when they're doing real recruitment for the right things, but who loves to get a phone call from a recruiter that you don't want to hear from? And I wonder why people haven't wanted to hear from parts of the church for so long. Because when we turn ourselves into a recruitment society, we have a story that no one wants to listen to. And so, what if you changed your job from recruiter to just be fruitful? The main idea that you have to then understand is that you need to know what kind of tree you are and that we're all different kinds of trees. And so if you're a tree that's supposed to produce apples and you've been asked to produce oranges, that's going to suck for your life because you're never going to feel like you're doing a good job. Apples and oranges are nothing the same. We had some amazing fruit in Europe. What was your favorite fruit, babe? Cherries? Really? Those strawberries didn't change your life? Yeah. Well, no, anywhere. Both France and, and Norway, those strawberries, I, it's, it's like they, I, the France strawberries were good. The Norwegian strawberries, because it's cooler and they have sunlight all summer, they grow in a very short amount of time with a whole lot of sunlight. This, uh, 
what, where is he from? He was from Netherlands on a fjord. He's telling us this on a fjord. He's telling us about the strawberries, and I hadn't had them yet in Norway, but I had them in France. Like, There's no way they're better than French strawberries. And then he tells me how the Norwegian strawberries are better, best that he's ever tasted in the whole world, blah, 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 because of the sunlight and the cool, blah, 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 blah. Then I go taste the strawberries, and I just wanted to, like, punch a door open. They were so good. It's like they've been soaked in sugar. They, they literally were like, you had an encounter with God because only God could create something like this by planting a flipping seed in the ground and you harvesting it in this Arctic land in the middle of summer when they, anyway. The fruit was amazing. But if, if, you, have, if you have a tree and you start yelling at your, your cherry tree to produce God-ordained strawberries soaked in heaven's sugar, it's going to fail every time. And in the church, we have all these people that are being told to do this when they're a different kind of tree. If you're, if, if you're not an evangelist, but you're told you're, you need to do this, 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 it's going to be really disappointing that you always produce fruit that's not very evangelistic. Now, at the same time, we're supposed to be pulling from the gifts of Jesus, no matter who we are, and we can enjoy all the fruit when we're connected to the body and having all these things working together. So it's not as an excuse, like, oh, I don't have to be this because I'm not that. But I do think that the real failure of the church is to identify the trees that we all are, the uniquenesses, the distinctions. And we have to do that in a community where we recognize giftedness and, and, and character and dynamics that we all carry uniquely and say, you're this kind of tree, therefore... Stop worrying about this kind of fruit. Your disappointment in your fruitfulness is because you haven't embraced your identity in the tree that you are. When you embrace the identity of your tree, you will enjoy the fruit that your tree is meant to produce. That was life transforming for me. Fruitfulness requires you to know what kind of tree that you are. Not just adding more people to the church. There's, there's so much fruitfulness in our giftedness that God has designed us to do. We need to know that. And if, 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 being, if being a bus driver, this is the example that Gerard used, if being a bus driver is your calling this, this month or this year or 10 years from now, here's the struggle, right? Is that like, is my identity in my job? Well, no. That's the thing, is that you find your tree and you're more likely to fit in a job. But we sometimes look at our job and what we do with our hands on a daily basis. I, I use that metaphorically. We use that as like our identity too. And we find all these things to, to fill the identity instead of God speaking what kind of tree am I? And I can bear fruit in and out of season when I just know what kind of tree I am. If you look at the basics of the Christian life and the fun stuff we get to do, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, if we look at that and go like, well, that doesn't matter what job I have, and that's the fun stuff. I mean, the superstar disciples got to go do the fun stuff. They got to go heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons, free people of spiritual bondage. That seems like a pretty amazing category of life. That had nothing to do with what tree they were. That had to do with the tree they're connected to the root system, right? So we get to do all the fun stuff, no matter what kind of tree you are. Every single one of us is commissioned to do that. But when you, you realize what kind of tree that you really are, you're like, okay, I get to do all the fun stuff, plus all this weird stuff that this person, this tree next to me, could not really enjoy doing, or theirs is super weird if they try to do this. Mine, look at these beautiful pieces of fruit. If you can just see, like, because I am the tree of encouragement. I was born to encourage everyone, no matter where they are. It's just amazing what that has. Well, then I can be a bus driver, and I can be the flipping best fruit-giving tree of encouragement ever, right? And all of a sudden, your job doesn't have the authority on your life to keep your tree from bearing fruit. Can we just say that together? I am not going to let my job keep me from bearing fruit. I am not going to let my job keep me from bearing fruit. Amen. That's freeing. Woo! I needed that. Sometimes.